If you turn with me to the passage on which today's teaching is based, it's 1 Samuel chapter 17, probably one of the most popular and familiar passages you've ever read since you were a child. If you've ever been in the church, if you've ever read the Bible or heard about the Bible in your life, 1 Samuel chapter 17, I'm going to begin with verse 32. It's a long passage, but we're going to need to read through it and walk through it. We could have read the whole passage, but I'm going to give you the background leading up to this text. We're going to read from verse 32 and on. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those who gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. And this is God's word. Last week, we saw the Spirit of God came down on David. 
And really, the coming of the Spirit, it means courage. It means that God has given you courage. The Spirit of God makes us bold. And David, he wasn't a king because he was bold. He became bold because of God's Spirit. And this is very important because even though we live in the most advanced culture in the history of the world, technologically and educationally and scientifically, we are more anxious. We are more anxious as a people than ever before, than ever before in history. So where do you get real courage? Where do you find it? That's what this passage, that's what David and Goliath, this famous passage, probably the most well-known text in all the Bible, except maybe the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, and yet it's so easily misunderstood. So we're going to relearn it today. That's what this whole series is about, relearning the Bible, relearning these old stories that we heard as children that we may have heard about if you've ever been to the church or maybe not been to the church. That's the point of the series. There are three points we're going to go into today. Why we need courage, very simple, why we need courage, two ways of getting it. Why we need courage, the bad way of getting it, the right way of getting it. First, we're going to go into why we need courage. <clears throat> the, the Philistines and the Israelites, they were enemies. They were enemies for a very long time, great enemies, and they were at war. And so in verse 3 of this passage, in this chapter, the Philistines showed up on one side of the hill and they camped themselves there, and Israelites, they showed up on the other hill, and there, between them there was this great valley. They set up their battle lines there. That's what this text said. And um, if you ever saw Braveheart, the movie Braveheart, uh, it's kind of like that. Now, if you go into that valley, that's where the battles took place. It was gruesome, gruesome battles. You were sure to die there. That was known as the valley of the shadow of death. The losing end, the losing country in that battle uh, would be in slavery to the winner for years. Wives, children, mothers, uh, families. And so in verse 4, in this valley, in this death zone, Goliath shows up. And Goliath, he's introduced to us as an enormous figure, a physical specimen. Now, uh, in verse 10, he challenges Israel. He taunts Israel, and he says, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man, and let us fight each other to the death. That's what he says. And in verse 11, on hearing this, Saul, the king, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. The king here, the king of the Israelites, is not kingly. Saul, he's paralyzed by fear. His army, they're not kingly. Uh, verse 16, 40 days go by, and no one comes forward to fight. So what is courage? David, in verse 32, he actually gives us a very helpful image, a very helpful picture of courage. In verse 32, David is very diplomatic because he's dealing with a king who is probably scared to death, paralyzed, stressed, anxious. And so he's very diplomatic. And here, here's what he says. He says, let no one lose heart. Why does he say that? It's pretty obvious. It's because everybody, especially Saul, lost heart. In fact, what the word, the phrase, uh, when he says, let no one lose heart, in the actual Hebrew, let no one lose courage. Let no one be discouraged. Hebrews, uh, the actual text says, let no one's heart run away from them. 
Let no one's heart be lost. Let no one's heart fall away. That's what this text is saying. In other words, if you do the wrong thing in these moments, in these circumstances where you have tremendous fear, if you do the wrong thing, if you do the selfish thing, if you run away, you will be safe. You will be safe. But if you do the right thing, if you do the unselfish thing, you may or may not be safe. But courage is to say, I'm going to do the right thing no matter what. That's courage. The ability to do the right thing, the selfless thing, the unselfish thing, regardless of the risk, regardless of the danger, regardless of the consequences. Now, a lot of us here, we're having trouble connecting with that. We say, well, that sounds kind of ancient. That sounds kind of Spartan. It sounds kind of primitive. You know, that kind of rah-rah, it's what, it's what the armies do. The ancient people do that. That's, that's what it sounds like. And yes, ancient cultures, and it's no coincidence, that ancient cultures, many of them, they held up courage as a virtue. We don't do that in our society today. They held up courage as a virtue. And it's because there were diseases back then. There were wars back then. There were invasions and marauders back then. Life was very insecure. Life was filled with uncertainties, filled with danger. You couldn't live without courage, but you still need courage today, don't you? Why? Because there are diseases, and there are wars and threats of wars. Life is very insecure. Life is filled with uncertainty. Life is filled with danger. But think about this. Facing physical pain is one type, is one type of courage, but there are others. There are others, other types of courage that you face every day. The courage to be able to say, I'm wrong. The courage to be able to look at your spouse and say, I'm wrong. The courage to be able to admit sin. The courage to be able to admit flaws, your contribution to the flaws in your relationships the courage to be able to sit in front of people that you see every week and to be able to open up about your weaknesses. That's huge because it's every day. You see that every day. Every time you bow to pressure at a party, every time you bow to pressure when you're alone with somebody, that's fear. Most of us, we live out of fear. We live out of fear in our jobs. We live out of fear in our, in our homes in front of our children. We live out of fear every day. Now, you, you say, well, not me. I mean, I could care less what people think about me. But then what do you do? You go to work and you work tirelessly. You work tirelessly to outdo other people at work. What are you doing? Do you see that? You work tirelessly to outdo other people at school. You give in to all sorts of sexual pressures, social pressures, because you don't want to lose approval. You don't want to lose acceptance. In fact, many of us are in relationships longer than we should because of those pressures. Many of us are in jobs or careers that we absolutely hate because we don't want to lose the approval of our families or our parents, people around us. We, want, we don't want to look weak. It's because of fear. It's because of fear. Now, you say, come on, really? You're going to compare peer pressure with the threat of war, with guns and artillery? Absolutely. You know why? Uh, because there are people in this room 
who would rather die than to experience humiliation. There are people here who will never face war. They will never face the horrors or the tragedy of, of war. But they would rather die than see something happen to their children. And so, yes, we are going to compare that. The greatest nightmare in our lives, it's not physical death. Oftentimes, it's losing our reputation. And, and, and so, uh, in essence, courage is confronting your heart's greatest nightmare and doing the right thing anyway, doing the unselfish thing anyway. The selfishness of cowardice is what kills us because we give in to our greatest fears, and it ruins our relationships. So I'm going to give you an example. Some of our parents are so afraid of losing ground at work. They overwork, and they work and work. And work is really their baby. And so what they do, they neglect their children. That's what they do. And, and as a reason, why, why are they doing that? Because they're giving into their fears. They're giving into their fears at work, losing ground at work. I've been counseling teenagers for the past 29 years, long before Metro it was ever even conceived. I've been counseling teenagers for 29 years. And it consistently comes up. It consistently comes up. I don't know my parents. My parents don't know me. My parents are never there for me. We understand. Now, you can't diminish the reasons why. I understand. I'm, I'm a child of an immigrant mother. I know. But it's because of the fear of losing our wealth, because of the fear of losing our lives. It's, become, it's greater than sometimes the fear of losing our children because we assume we're never going to lose our children. And yet, because you assume you can't lose your children, you're going to lose your children. Do you see that? And so we bow to fear. We bow to the fear of losing our jobs. We bow to the fear of losing our wealth. We bow to the fears of not keeping up. We battle the fears of failure. Now, then you have parents who can't say no to their children. They absolutely just can't say no. They, they bend. They break every time. We coddle our children, especially in our society today. It's killing our children. It's actually killing our children. Why? Because when we say no, we see our children, they're so unhappy. We see our children, they're, they're, they're so angry and we're cowards. That desire for approval that we had when we were in high school has now been transferred, right? That desire for approval that we had when we were teenagers has now been transferred. It's never been addressed, so it's been transferred to a need for our children's love. And so we just can't discipline them, not, not the right way at least, not real discipline. We're cowards. It makes us very self-absorbed, very self-centered. And it's why fear is really the enemy of love. It's why perfect love casts out fear. Fear makes us think only for ourselves, not for other people. And it's easy to justify. A lot of our fears, the way we respond to our fears, it's easy to justify because we're saying, well, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing that for you. But you're not. You're doing it for yourself. You're doing it to serve your fears. You're still a slave. You're, an actu- you're actually a slave. That's Saul. Saul, called by God originally, rejected by God because he was meant to serve his people, and yet he failed his people, utterly failing his people, utterly failing Israel. Israel, the army, called to guard God's people, utterly in failure. Why? They are slaves to their fear. That's why we need courage. Now, here's one way of dealing with, uh, with our fears. Um, it's so important. It's why it's so important to relearn this text. Uh, most people study this text 
I studied this text growing up. Most of, my, most of my years, even into adulthood, I studied this text like this. Goliath represents the sum of your greatest fears. And David represents how you should handle your fears. You got to fight them. You got to be like David. How are you going to be like David? You got to trust God. You got to be humble. You got to tackle these giants in your life. That's how you be courageous. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. And if you believe that, it's probably because at that moment, if you actually believe that, at that moment, you're not really, you're not truly scared if you really believe that. Because if you were truly scared and somebody just says, well, you got to be like David. I mean, if you're facing death in the eye and someone tells you, but yeah, you got to be like David, you know it's not going to help you. It's too pat. It's cold comfort. It's too pat. Now, in most Hebrew texts, most Hebrew texts, most Hebrew literature, you know, I, I imagine not many of us here are Hebrew literary scholars. I had to look into this myself. Most Hebrew texts, they almost never go into the type of detail about Goliath, the way we read here about Goliath. Most Hebrew texts don't go into that type of detail, uh, that, that type of description uh, of an enemy like we see here in this chapter. That, that genre of, if it was fiction, that genre of fiction didn't come about until like only in a couple, couple hundred years ago. Uh, the author is writing this because it happened, because it's news. And, uh, you know, writers in the ancient Hebrew literary genre they were very economical with their descriptions, but here Goliath is given a very detailed description. Verses 4 through 7 in chapter 17 talks about his cubits, his span, his height. He had a bronze helmet. He wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's roughly 125 pounds. That's just his armor. Uh, he had bronze on his legs. He wore bronze greaves and a bronze, carried a bronze javelin, a spear shaft with an iron point. Lots of detail. Now, what does it mean? Because you think the storyteller is kind of embellishing this story. Good drama. That's what I used to think. The storyteller must be trying to just heighten our senses and embellish the story. But that's not what he's doing. Robert Alter He's a professor at Berkeley University, and uh, he's actually a, a liberal uh, scholar, but, uh, but he's one of the foremost Hebrew biblical scholars in our world. And uh, he says this description of, of Goliath is unique in all of ancient, ancient Hebrew literature. And this is what he says. Goliath moves into action as a man of iron and bronze. In other words, he is the man of steel. An almost grotesquely quantitative embodiment of a hero. And, it, and this is the hulking monument to an obtusely mechanical conception of what constitutes power, of how we view power. What's he saying? Basically, I'm going to say it very plainly. We're obsessed with the male physique. We're obsessed with our figures. We're obsessed with the Goliaths of the world. We're obsessed with that. And it actually distorts your view of reality. It distorts your view of what power really is. 
Is Robert Alter here saying that David is a hero and Goliath is a coward? Absolutely not. There's no way that when you read that, what I just read to you, there's no way that's what he's saying. I used to think David was highlighted as this brave hero and Goliath is this coward or this evil villain. But verse 4 actually says something very, very different. If you read actually in the Bible in verse 4, Goliath is a champion. That means that at that battle, Goliath and David, they're both heroes. Goliath and David, they both had courage. They're just two different types of courage. Two different ways of dealing with fear. Goliath represents a very natural way, a very instinctive way, a very worldly way of dealing with fear. We're all born with it. That's all of us. We all deal with fear this way. And thus, it's a very natural, worldly view of courage. How? I'm going to give you a few examples here. Number one, Goliath relies on his gifts, his talent. Goliath is a physical specimen. The author goes into great detail. Why? He's tall. Tall meant he was a leader. Tall meant that he was powerful. He was strong. And Saul, Saul's brought in, verse 33, King Saul says to David, you can't beat him. Saul, the representative of God's people as the king over Israel, looks at Goliath. Why? Because Goliath is the epitome of what Saul wants to be. That's why Saul was rejected. If you were here the last two weeks, you saw that. Saul's, the epitome of Saul is Goliath. He's taller than Saul, and Saul was a tall man. He's trained better than Saul. He is more, more powerful than Saul. He's more weaponed than Saul. His defense is greater than Saul. He's the epitome, the champion. And Saul looks at him and he says, you can't beat him, David. You are young. Look at Goliath. He's experienced. He's been fighting since he was a boy, since he was young. He's trained. He's experienced. He's gifted. He's talented. David, totally overlooked. David is probably the world's greatest underdog, history's greatest underdog, largely overlooked. No one cared for his gifts. When Samuel, and last week we talked about this, Samuel asked for Jesse to bring all of his sons because one of them would be king. <laughs> Jesse had eight sons. He only brought seven. He only brought seven. Seven sons. Number seven means complete, perfect. And David was number eight. David was the eighth son, totally disregarded. He watched his father's sheep. He was used to bring lunch to his brothers who were standing in the line, paralyzed by fear. His job was to bring them lunch. Totally disregarded. And yet, in fa- the, the author, the author does a, a kind of a play here. Twice the author notes that David's family had eight sons. Twice the, father, uh, notes, uh, the author notes that, um, that uh, he watched his father's sheep. Very, very interesting. Because when you're looking for a leader, the first thing we do is we look at their gifts. No one was paying attention that God was training David himself. He was largely overlooked. Verses 34 to 37, David diplomatically talks to Saul. He says, I killed a lion 
How did nobody catch this? I killed a lion. He actually, it wasn't from far away. He said, I grabbed it by its hair. Close range. I killed a lion. I killed a bear. In fact, if you actually read the language, uh, he says that the one, the Lord who will rescue me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. The word hand there, he's, he will rescue me from the paw of the Philistine. Da- David was being groomed to kill things that were larger, quicker, instinctively greater than him in terms of battle. But there he learned to kill those things. He learned to defend. He learned to be faithful. He wasn't going to let a sheep go. It's his father's sheep. He learned to be protective. He learned to be extinctive. You see, we rely too much on our gifts. It blinds us from reality. Number two, Goliath was advanced. Goliath was trained since he was a boy. Very important. You got to keep in mind, David was poor. David was primitive. Very, very low tech. The Bible's way of showing uh, very commonplace items like a staff and a sling to come to battle with. He wasn't advanced. The text says when Saul placed the tunic and the armor, the helmet over David, he was not used to them. And he says, I can't go in these. He took a staff. He took a sling. Uh, Later, God sees David and he says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Really what he says, he's insulted. Am I an animal? I mean, you got to remember what's going on here. Goliath is showing up. And he's got technology on him. He's got bronze. He's got iron. Those were technological advances in their day. That's what made the Philistines such a great power, a superpower in their area. They fought with bronze and they fought with iron. And so he's covered. He's got armor, the most technologically advanced armor. And he's built himself to be strong with his gifts and his talents. And he looks at David and it's insulting because David has nothing in his eyes. Nothing. And he always says, am I a dog? Am I primitive? Am I that low to you? Come here. That's what he says. He's insulted. Goliath came ready. From his, with his greatest faculties, he's come ready. The latest scale armor, the bronze grease, bronze, very high tech. Thirdly, Goliath was confident. Verse 42, the text says, he looked David over. That's what it says. He looked David over. And uh, the author says, uh, Goliath is gifted. He was trained. He was tall. He was brute. He was advanced. And he looks at David. And, and really what he's saying is, he says, look at me. I am twice your size. I am high tech. I am advanced. I am twice the warrior that you are. I am twice the man that you are. You come with sticks. You're not ready. Goliath has no doubts. Nowhere here do you see his fears. No doubts. There's no evidence in this text that he has any fears. He sees no danger here, and that's the problem. That's the problem. This is how the world views courage. Suppress your fears. How do you suppress your fears? You got to put on the best armor. You got to arm yourself. You got to build you got to work out. Don't let anyone push you around. you got to work. you got to work out. you got to accumulate. you gotta, you got to increase your potential, increase your options, increase your gifts. Get rid of your fears. Goliath looks David over, and he says, are you serious? This is a joke. That's how most of us deal with our fears. 
And, and there are tremendous problems with this because I'm not saying that no good comes from that. I mean, we've seen in history some tremendous acts of bravery because of people who come with that. But, so I don't want to minimize the good that comes from that, but it's very taxing. It's very tiring. And most of all, you can't sustain it. Who can sustain that for all life? Because one day you will encounter... Friends, I'm going to speak to you as a pastor here a little bit, okay? Your life is designed in such a way that you will encounter a Goliath. It's designed to bring you down. It's desi- life is designed, in this broken world, life is designed to destroy you. Okay? I know that doesn't sound very encouraging. I'm just trying to bring you some wisdom, okay? With such wisdom that I have. I'm like 43, such wisdom, right? Um, so it's very shallow to come with just that. What are the problems? One, Goliath is brave and he's strong, he's prepared, but he lacked the one thing that he needed to win. He lacked the one thing that he needed to survive. He needed a real picture of what was happening there. He needed reality. There was a danger, but his confidence and his advancements and his gifts blinded him to the real dangers. He was very gifted, but he didn't have the right kind of paranoia to be able to see reality. David was aware of the danger. David was walking into the valley of the shadow of death. Goliath, was, after looking David over, he's blind. And that's why he's in danger. He lacked the one thing that he needed to win this war, to win this battle. He lacked Wisdom, the humility to realize that there still was a danger, that maybe this man that's coming, there's something there. He lacked that. Uh, he, he suppressed his fears. We know what fear does. Fear, in large ways, is unhealthy, but there are some things about fear that we need, right? Because fear keeps you out of danger a lot of times. Fear lets you sharpen. Fear sharpens your senses. Fear is fear, but what is fear? Fear takes something that is kind of real, and then it magnifies it. If it wasn't magnified, it wouldn't be a fear. So fear is something that you have that gets magnified. Your rea- the realities of your life get magnified. Real fear, it's very disproportionate, but it's realistic. The world is dangerous. And so to fear, to rid yourself of fear, to think that you can protect yourself with armor, to just protect yourself, Reclude yourself, seclude yourself, put armor on. C.S. Lewis says, you can do that, and inside you will rot. Inside you will rot. And some of you are rotting. Friends, I know. Because it's instinctive for us, natural for us to protect ourselves. That's why we have resumes. That's why a lot of us lie on our resumes. Because we're trying to show ourselves to be Goliath. You're trying to protect yourself from the discouragement and the disappointment. And you know how you end up? The Bible here is telling us you end up like Saul, discouraged, dismayed, and terrified. To think that you can protect yourself with armor and weapons, it's like relying on a sugar high, right? Relying on a sugar high to get through a marathon. 
That's what it's like. That kind of courage, like Goliath, is unsustainable. It's never going to help you to do the right thing when you're in a losing battle, when you're sure to lose. Where do you get the courage to do something when you know you're going to die, when you know you're going to get buried, when you know you're going to lose? Uh, We look over our situations and we say, I can't do it. The enemy is just too great. I can't win. Then where is the courage? Because you can't escape the realities of the giants in our lives. You can't do that. Life is designed to eventually meet many Goliaths in our lives. You need something that's bigger than Goliath, that's going to help you do the right thing, overwhelm your fears, to empower you to act decisively. So in a sense, you don't want to disengage from your fears, right? Because then you're going to be blind to reality. That's, That's Goliath. When you actually need reality to act decisively. Everyone here has a Goliath like fear. Your greatest nightmare Where are you going to get the real courage to face that? Right? We often try to counteract our fears, right, by being like Goliath. That's what we try to do. Build, talent, wealth, our reputations. That's why we pursue promotion. That's why we grow families. It's why we have to buy bigger homes. Our egos just put us to slavery, just put us to work. That's what we do. We're living out of fear right? That's our armor. That's our shield. And the Bible says that kind of courage can't sustain you when you face the real Goliaths, the ones that can really kill you. I'm tempted to think here. I was tempted to think David must have been very brave. Verses 45 to 47, David says, you come, you see this in his language, you come at me with a sword, a spear, a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. I grew up being taught that if you have a faith the way David had, pursue a faith like David, then God will work in your life. God's going to give you courage. God's going to be able to allow you to handle the big giants in your life. And if you grew up like that, most likely you left the church after a little while because God disappointed you. Because if you go at it like that, you will lose every time. You will lose. And you won't know how to handle loss when you go like that. You can't do that. I grew up thinking that uh, if I just trust and if I just have faith, if I just obey God, then God will protect me. God will will definitely protect me. But did God ever promise that? Did God ever promise to protect you if you pray and obey? Because if you look at Jesus who is the most obedient and perfect person ever. Jesus prayed. Jesus obeyed perfectly. Jesus trusted God perfectly. Jesus was faithful to God perfectly. Did everything go well for Jesus? No. He died. He died. So the lesson can't be be like David. In fact, this is why the passage is so important because it teaches us then how to get courage. How do you get it? Here's the last point. We're going to go very quickly through this. Let's not apply this text the way we thought we were supposed to apply it as children. Let's not try to be like David. You can't be like David. You can't fight giants like that. You want to apply the text? Who are we in this text? Are we David? No. We're the cowards. We are Saul. We are the Israelite army. 
<clears throat> we need somebody to rescue us, to go into the valley of the shadow of death. Look, God didn't send us just an example that we have to emulate. God didn't send us just some inspiration that motivates. God didn't send us a coach that's going to push you, rah, rah, buck up. David is not a coach. David is not an example. David is a representative. God sent his people a substitute. I used to read this passage for inspiration. But the passage here, is not, it's not really here to inspire you because inspiration is not going to be lasting. It's not going to sustain you. Inspiration will not transform you. The book, The Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, that will inspire you. If you can read Latin, that, I mean, if you can read Latin, it'll inspire you. If you, read, if you can read Latin, the Aeneid, if you can read Greek, the Odyssey, if you can read Latin, the Aeneid, it will inspire you. But David's story is completely different. It's actually a very uninspiring story if you really look into it. David's story, completely different than these other stories. How? One, David came in weakness. David came with youth. He was inexperienced, untrained. He was small. He refuses the armor because he can't go in the armor. But his victory didn't come in spite of his weakness. David was victorious because he was weak. God didn't use David like this. God didn't use David by saying, oh, God, this is what I have to work with? This scrawny, puny, poor, untrained, uneducated boy? That's what I've got? Oh, I am God, and I will try. God didn't choose David. God didn't choose David like that. God chose David because he was weak. That's number one. Two, second thing, this is key. David came as a representative. David came as a substitute. He was weak, and that weakness he represented. He was a substitute. Goliath says in verse 8 and 9, he says, I want you to choose a man and have him come down to face me. In ancient times, that's how it worked. Your champion was a legal representative of the entire people. He was the legal representative for the strength and the power of the entire army. In other words, David was going into the valley of the shadow of death, the death zone, the valley of death, not just fighting for them. He was fighting as them. Do you get that? It's why Goliath says, if he kills me, we will become your subjects. If David wins, God's people get everything that David deserved. If David wins, they win. If David loses, they lose. You get that? In other words, if David is brave, these people, 40 days standing there eating lunch, they don't know what they're doing, they don't know how. If David is brave, they are brave. If David goes into the valley, they have gone into the valley. If David dies, they die. If David rises, they rise. What happens to David, in other words, is transferred to his people. Very important. You know why? This is it. Hebrews chapter 13 says this. It's written in your word of encouragement. 
Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I'm going to break this down. I'm going to use some Greek here, okay? The author and the perfecter of our faith. The word author is the Greek word archegos. The word perfecter is the Greek word finisher. What is an archego? What is your archego? Your arch rival is what? The greatest epitome of your enemy, the opposite of who you are. What is your arch ego? The greatest epitome of who you are, yourself. He is your representative. The word arch ego in the Greek, it means champion. The champion. The word perfecter, the word tetelion, telios, it means finisher. That means, right, I'm going to kind of put this together. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the champion and the finisher, the completer of our faith. That means Jesus Christ is not, he did not come as the greater Goliath. He came as the greater David, and he won. That's what it means. For all time, he is our legal representative, and he won. He finished. He came as our champion. He walked into the valley of the shadow of death. He came as our legal representative. That means if he wins, we win. If he loses, we lose. If he dies, we die. If he rises, we rise. If he's brave, we are brave. We are brave. And he finished. He said on the cross, he said, it is it is finished. I have completed the work. I finished the fight. I finished the war. Jesus Christ is the ultimate David. Jesus Christ was weak. Jesus Christ was vulnerable. He came with no armor. He came as a baby. You cannot get more vulnerable in this world than being a baby. But he didn't, dis- he didn't save us despite his weakness. It was through that weakness, on the cross, through that weakness, he saved us. He saved us not from physical death. He saved us from eternal death, not from physical slavery, but the slavery of sin, the slavery of your fears. He saved us from these things, and he didn't save us at the risk of his life in the valley of the shadow of death. He saved us at the cost of his life. That's why he's the greatest David. That's why he's the ultimate David. David went into the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus Christ went into the ultimate valley. And he got buried. He died. And he won through that weakness, through that brokenness, through that death. What is your greatest nightmare? Losing your love, losing your name, losing your reputation, losing your wealth, losing your life? That's real. Those are real things. You face those giants on your own. If you say, I've lo- if I lose these things, I'm going to lose my joy. I will lose my freedom. I am in hell. But look how hard you're working to finish and to complete and to protect these things. You're still a slave. You are a slave to your fears. But Jesus Christ on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I've lost my center. I've lost my father. I have lost my God. And that means I've lost my love. I've lost my name. I've lost my, all my wealth. I've lost my life. Separated from God, totally forsaken, means I am in hell. 
he faced his greatest nightmare, the ultimate hell. And yet, do you know, he said, not my will, yours be done. He did the right thing. He obeyed perfectly, and he went into the valley of the shadow of death. And Isaiah 53 says he was glad. He was satisfied. On the cross, he said, it is finished. The author and the perfecter, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the champion, the finisher. Jesus Christ faced the gigantic wrath of God and he finished it with victory as us so that we could have everything he deserved. Our Father has won. Do you see the beauty of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the courage of Jesus? Let that move you to joy. My favorite preacher, Tim Keller, he says, courage is not the absence of fear. It's the presence of joy. It's a joy that is real because it's in the midst of circumstances that are horrible that says, I can be brave. How did Jesus become brave? Hebrews 13, it's right there in your word of encouragement. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the arch ego, the champion and the finisher of our faith, who for what? For the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus Christ at Gethsemane, troubled, afraid. Then how did he do it? Why did he do it? He had everything. King of the universe. What joy could he possibly lack? And there was only one. Isaiah 53. He will be satisfied at the justification of many. What was the joy for the man who had it all that was worth giving it all up? What joy made it all worthwhile. Friends, you are that joy. Seeing you rescued was that joy. That is bigger. It has to be bigger than the Goliaths. Because if it is, if it's bigger than the Goliaths in your life, then to see that you are his joy, he will be your joy. And that courage will be the presence of joy in your troubles. Because Jesus Christ braved the ultimate nightmare, we can face our smaller nightmares. No matter how big, no matter how small, the nightmare of Jesus, he endured it. We can face ours with courage. Because of the ultimate love and wealth and status, we have his name. We have it in him. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness, doing the right thing approval of God. For his name's sake, 
even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before my enemies. That's talking trash. You prepare a table before my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let that be your prayer. Let's pray.